0: It's a gospel to everybody. Uh, well, I, that's what I want to say is just stay in your seat belt and hang in there. Um, for next week is going to be the perseverance. Of, I'm going to do Irresistible Grace today. Our brother Seth's going to do Perseverance of the Saints, and then I'm going to wind it up with how can a, an evangelist be a Calvinist? So hang on there. We have to make some distinctions between hyper-Calvinism and Calvinism, and hopefully that can be clarified in the minds of people that will be hearing this as well. I just want to touch on one thing uh, that I didn't quite get to last week and that had to do with, you know, why would somebody believe that Christ died only for some and not for all? And when you first hear it, it seems alarming, like something's being diminished from the gospel. Something about what Jesus did seems to be getting uh, affected or injured or there's a hindrance uh, or or some limit Jesus' crucifixion and what he accomplished atoning-wise. And one brother had a lot of difficulty with that. He was a, a well-known author and he said, what got me to, to believe that atonement was limited was when I realized that Sodom and Gomorrah were undergoing the vengeance of eternal fire when Jesus was hanging on the cross atoning for sin, So, therefore, the atonement could could not have been applicable to people who already were in hell and who were already suffering for their own sins. Jesus wasn't dying on the cross to rescue those who were already banished from God and under judgment from God, not their final judgment, but the judgment until the ultimate great white throne judgment. And that was something that clicked with him and gave him a clarification on what limited atonement would mean, that it could not be applicable to every human being that ever lived on the earth. Otherwise, that would be redundant because of those that were already suffering in hell. Well, anyway, if you'd like to listen to last week's sermon, you can, even though we had some technical difficulties in it. I think you'll get the majority of what was said last week if you go to our website and you can check out and I hope you do check out all of the different points of Calvinism as they're called. We said last week that Calvin wasn't even alive when the five points of Calvinism came came out. There was what was called the five remonstrants by some Dutch theologians who opposed the general doctrine of the Reformation concerning salvation and calling and election and predestination, etc. And they, they posed what was came to be known as the five remonstrants. Well, in response to that... In 1618, eight years later, came out the Synod of Dort, D-O-R-T, and there came out the Five Doctrines of Grace that later were called also the Five Points of Calvinism. And it wasn't until 1932 that it got the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, Total Depravity, Unconditional Election, Limited Atonement, Irresistible Grace, and Perseverance of the Saints. So anyway, today we're going to talk about irresistible grace. So turn with me to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, and we're going to read from verse 6 to verse 11. Isaiah 55, verse 6 to 11. Could you stand as well for the reading of the word of God? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Verse 11. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty or void, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. And you may be seated. That's a popular verse, is it not? We have always quoted that passage. God's Word will not return to Him void. What do we mean by that? What does Isaiah mean? What does the Word of God mean when it says it will not return to Him void? And Isaiah uses the analogy of rain and snow coming down from heaven to accomplish its purposes as it beds itself in the ground and seeds itself in, in, the, in the earth's surface and brings forth fruit. So too it is with God's Word. One thing I think we can get out of it not returning to Him void is, hold on, you might be surprised what God's Word is going to do, and it may take a long time before it comes to fruition. There's a story that's told, it's a true one You may have heard me say this Of a professor who stayed on the college campus During the summer months rather than going home He had a, His place was there And he had access to the gymnasium And to the swimming pool So it was a very hot summer night He couldn't sleep He was a swimmer and he decided That he was going to go into the gym And into the swimming pool And to enjoy a night swim in the middle of the night So he gets in And he chooses not to turn the lights on because he didn't want to draw any attention from the security guards or any who were on campus at the moment. So he decided instead of jumping from the side of the pool into the pool that he would go up on the diving board. So he mounts the diving board and he spreads his hands out to dive and the moonlight shined on his body and cast a shadow all the way across on the other side of the pool, on the wall. And when he saw that, it convicted him of his state of soul. He decided not to jump in the water. In deep conviction, he got down off the diving board, went down to the side, and got on his knees, and he prayed the John 3:16 3, 3, prayer, that God, you so love the world that whoever believes in you will not perish but have everlasting. That person, that Roger was his name, the professor, had grown up in a Christian home. He had heard the word of God. He had spurned the gospel up till this point. But as he spread his arms and made him think of the crucifixion and the love of God, and he cried out to the Lord for mercy and salvation, and he got saved right there on the spot. Hallelujah. Heaven came down and glory filled his soul. So now, instead of going up on the diving board, he decides he's going to just step into the pool. So he turns his back, he goes down one spot on the ladder, doesn't feel the water, goes down another spot, another spot. It ended up that the pool had been emptied entirely, which they commonly do do that in big swimming pools so they can replenish it and put new, new water in. Just think of that, what a miracle! God is a miracle-working God. in the greatest miracles is the miracle of a new birth. Hmm. It will not return to Him void. God had a purpose, even though it had been sent years before. That, like rain, had settled and took a long time before it took root. But you can be sure that Roger, in God's purposes would save him. That God would regenerate him and give him life. I want you to look at this this quotation that we have here. Uh, Oh, just went by it. This is from Charles Spurgeon. We believe that the work of regeneration, conversion, sanctification, and faith is not an act of man's free will and power, but of the mighty, efficacious, and irresistible grace of God. My word will not return to me void, but it will accomplish that which I purpose it to do. It will succeed. If God intends to send it for a purpose, it will be accomplished. So let's get a correct understanding of it not returning to me void. Think of the example of the sower that went out to sow the seed. Jesus is the sower. The seed is the word of God. And it says that some seed fell by the wayside. Some fell among the rock. Some fell among the thorns. And all of the three by the wayside, the devil comes and snatches it away. The one where the, where the ground is shallow, it says that it springs up for a moment and then dries up once the sun hits it. And the third one is the thorns close in and Jesus describes it as the cares of the world, and there 's no fruit on either of them the wayside on rocky ground or among thorns. but the fourth one when it 's sown, the good seed falls into the ground and brings forth fruit if you 've been saved it 's because the seed has been sown, the good seed in a way that God pleased to let it fertilize and to Uh, uh, germinate and bring forth that regeneration life that created in you fruit. That's why Jesus says by their fruits you shall know them. We'll hear more about that next week. But when somebody is regenerated, born again it's got to come out of them the new life that's been given to them. If they were truly dead in trespasses and sins, which everybody is if they have new life from God they have resurrection life. They're going to live that life out. It's going to be fruitful. There's going to be evidence. There's going to be a love for God, a love for their neighbor, a love for the Word, a love for God's people, the church. That's going to be the fruit from the Word sown into the heart. So irresistible grace. Can you or I, could we have resisted the gospel? Could we have heard it and said, no, we don't want anything to do with it. I understand it and I just don't believe it. Well, We don't want to say that man doesn't have a choice or that man doesn't have a will or that man is not engaged in the act of conversion. That would be a wrong misunderstanding or wrong understanding, I should say, if someone believes that man's will is not engaged in the conversion experience. It is. The question is, where does the urge, where does the desire, where does the will come from, come from to want to be saved? Let me read a couple of citations that I think could be helpful in us understanding this. First of all, the sovereignty of God's grace in saving sinners will always be a rock of offense to human pride. Because it robs us of our part of getting credit and it gives the glory all to God. If God is sovereign over our salvations, we must bow the knee and say... To God be the glory. It's of God and not of me. He's the one that drew me. He's the one that empowered me. Man is nothing. He hath a free will to go to hell, but none to go to heaven till God works in him to do of his good pleasure. Salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. We say, don't we, and sing lustfully, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. If you don't really believe this, then don't ever sing that song. You can't say amazing grace that saved a wretch like me unless you understand two things. That you're a wretch, that you're broken, that you're guilty, that you're hellbound, that you're unworthy of everlasting life. There's no good in you. But the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to you. And that grace manifested itself to you and your wretchedness now has been changed as Paul says to the Romans that you are saints by calling. Called you. The Lord called you in a way that you effectually responded to that message. How could you possibly do that? Irresistible grace isn't merely an offer that can be accepted or rejected, but a divine intervention that fundamentally changes the heart and will of the individual. God doesn't just knock on the door. He knocks the door down. Our pride, our our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our Especially in these days, our self-esteem and that whole movement of trying to promote man and glorify Him, the triumph of man and elevation of man, uh uh-uh, that's not how it works. God wants you to know, I am God. I am the Savior. I save whosoever I will. And we can praise God that we have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. You did not choose Christ. He chose you. Without doubt, you chose to sin. But he did not choose you to be damned. He chose you to be a vessel of mercy. Irresistible grace is supernatural in sovereign work of God. Salvation is ultimately a divine initiative not dependent on human effort and that God's grace is effective and transformative. If you've been transformed It's because of the effectiveness that the gospel has had on your life. Can you think like the hymn writer said, Years I spent in vanity and pride, knowing not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me He died on Calvary. That would be a wonderful way of classifying our pre-converted days. Years I spent in vanity and pride, far from God, Psalm 10 verse 4 says that the, the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. When, when people who preach the word make the gospel appealing by way of sort of maybe changing the manner that came down from heaven and trying to dress it up as it were and make it a little more flavorful, make it a little more appealing, don't preach hell, don't preach guilt, Don't preach sin. Don't preach judgment. Don't mention the blood. Just tell people you can have a great life. You can have a prosperous life. God has a great plan for you in your life. That's a faulty gospel. No one will ever understand truthfully that song Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me unless they know that they're a wretch. And if you're in the audience and have never been saved, it's because your pride. Pride is the downfall of man. That's what keeps man from God primarily because we don't want to humble ourselves. Jesus says, He that humbles himself will be exalted, but he that exalts himself will be abased. God resists the proud, but gives mercy and grace to the humble. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and He will lift you up. When Jesus saw the man that had come into the temple who had fallen flat on his face, head down, beating his breast, couldn't even lift up his, his eyes to heaven and said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Jesus says, of such is the kingdom of heaven because of the humility, the lowliness. And what brings us so low? What makes me feel depraved, guilty, undone, unworthy? The, the grace of God. It shows me how undone I am, how unclean I am. I was like a sheep that had gone astray. I had turned to my own way. But God in mercy took my sins and laid them on His Son and opened my eyes like Lydia's in my heart so that I could understand the message of salvation and say like the hymn writer, it was for me. Yes, all for me, O love of God, so rich and so free. Praise the Lord that God made Himself precious to me by showing me that I could not trust in myself. One of the problems lots of people have is it's like going out in a little rowboat and you want to go fishing. Then the winds kick up and, and you're getting tossed to and fro and you're floating all over back and forth. The current's taking you. And that's how people are in their lives. They're, they're like on, on, on the river of life that's twisting and turning and moving them in all kinds of different directions. Little do they realize that they got an anchor, and that anchor has to be thrown out, and that anchor has to be landed on something. The hymn writer says, We have an anchor that keeps the soul, steadfast and sure though the billows roll, fastened to the rock that cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. All too often people keep the anchor in, the, in their selves, they're trusting themselves. He that trusts himself is a fool. you got to cast the anchor out and say, it's all of Christ. To Him be the glory. I take none. It's all of Him. Someone gave a wonderful illustration to try to describe what the will of man is like. Unaffected by the Holy Spirit. It's like a hungry lion that you're able to put in front of Him a, a meal, and you decide to put a beautiful salad with all kinds of delicacies, no meat at all, just a vegetable salad. That hungry lion has no appetite for it whatsoever. It does not appeal to their to the nature of a lion. But if you put a piece of meat in front of it, look out. You see, that's what the gospel is to us naturally there 's no nothing in it, Isaiah says there 's no beauty in him that we should desire him now that might hurt you a bit and say, Well, I never really thought so negatively about Jesus, but you don 't realize that inwardly you did. I love the illustration I heard many years ago, and I think it helps describe sometimes the varieties of kinds of sinners we are, and that he said it 's like two having two rotten eggs, and um, one rotten egg is busted. And all of the inside of it comes out and the odor of it is putrid. It's horrendous. It's just stinks to the high heavens. The other, the other egg on the other hand has not been broken. And you might ask the question, well, which rotten egg is worse? They're both rotten eggs. The only difference is one had through their lifetime experiences Maybe opportunities, maybe because of where they grew up, maybe because of the parents that they had, maybe because of their lack of education, maybe because they never went to church, their parents never introduced them to God or the Bible or anything of that sort. There might be more oozing from that sinful nature. Whereas the one that's in a shell is like the one has been sheltered and has been taught, like these children wonderfully, uh, doctrines... Of the Bible and wonderful catechisms to learn about who God is, the nature of God, the 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 love of God, etc., etc. Well, they're not any different than the one that has the egg broken, and all that ugliness and sinfulness comes out of them. Both are equally in need of conversion. And maybe you grew up as a rotten egg in in shelled rotten egg, or maybe some here in this room grow up with a with a broken shell, and all of the sinful nature of you just flowed like a river out of your being. In either case, there still needs to be a revelation. There needs to be the regeneration of the heart to enlighten the person to believe. Think of the example of when Peter was... as equally when uh, Cornelius was having a, a vision of an angel that said to him... That your prayers have been heard. He was a devout man, and he prayed often. The angel says, "Your prayers have been heard." Call for a man named Simon, uh, uh, Peter rather, who's with Simon the Tanner, and this is what he says: He shall tell you words whereby you and all your house shall be saved. Acts eleven fourteen. He'll tell you words whereby you and all your house will be saved. Would there be any doubt? that the words that Peter was going to bring to the house of Cornelius would not be effective? The Lord had already said through the angel, he'll tell you words whereby you and all your house will be saved. If you've been elected in Christ from before the foundation of the world, is there any doubt that you would not have heard the gospel and believed the gospel? the gospel would have been irresistible because of the way in which God punctuates it by the gravity pull of the Holy Spirit on the human heart that says, I want Jesus. Yes, your seeking really genuinely begins when the Holy Spirit tries to operate in your soul. Can anyone claim here that they've been saved apart from the Holy Spirit? I don't think a hand would go up. As a matter of fact, I don't know if any Christian would want to raise a hand and say, I get saved without the Holy Spirit. That doesn't make sense, does it? The wind blows where it lists you hear the sound thereof. Cannot tell whence it's cometh the words. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Anyone that's saved has been born of the Spirit. So if the Spirit is sent to sanctify the soul, to regenerate it, to point them to Christ who was their sacrifice substituted for them on the cross, that's going to be accomplished because God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Our brother Richard was reading in Acts 13, 48, after the presentation of the Word, many of the Jews were rejecting it. Many of the Gentiles came to the synagogue. It says the whole city came out to hear the Word. Those are good days when you get people interested in the Word. Let's pray that God will bring a Jesus revolution to the United States of America. In Sovereign Grace Chapel, you and I can be a means that God could use in proclaiming the gospel, living the gospel, sharing the gospel in varieties of different ways. We don't have to be on street corners preaching out there, but we can be maybe in our workplace, maybe with a neighbor, maybe with a card, maybe with a text, an email, something that we can spread the good news that God would use us for the proclamation of the gospel and the salvation of souls. Well anyway, while Paul preached, it says that they believed and it says, as many as were ordained to eternal life, irresistibly by that grace received the gospel. The Lord ordained that they which hear the word would believe. If God ordains people to believe, they're going to believe. That's why it's called irresistible grace. It's not that man doesn't have a resistance to things. They certainly do. There is a real will. Man is a free agent. There's no doubt about it. We're not robotic. God's created us with free thinking. But we're not free enough that we want to choose Christ. As I go back to what Luther had said in this expression... I can find it real quickly. He says, I freely admit that according to the Scripture, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's 1 Timothy 2, four. But I have also maintained, this is where we have to have that balance. This is where hyper-Calvinism can go wrong on one side and Arminianism go wrong on the other side. So let me read that again. I freely admit that according to the Scripture, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Amen. But I have also maintained and proved that that no one except the Spirit of God is capable of comprehending or recognizing this doctrine in its purity and entirety. The capability to comprehend and recognize the truth of the gospel is something that must be revealed by the Holy Spirit. And you know what that does? It takes all the pride out of you. It suctions you, it suctions it all out of you. And you say, it's all of God and not of me. Now you might have the concern, because we do want to be practical here. And this often comes up, especially with children brought up in Christian homes. I don't, I'm not an elect, so there's no sense in me even pursuing God. I'm not chosen. I, I, I'm, 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 I'm one of those damned ones. I like the way your brother put it. If you're really concerned about you not being an elect... Say God, elect me! Elect me! Now I know that's not theologically clear or sound, but the earnestness of the soul that cries out, cries out to God with a true desire, because the Bible says you have from the heart obeyed that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Romans chapter 6. It's a hard thing. God doesn't like just simply like do some physiological work in our inner being and, and create this kind of Uh, physical response of some sort it's a real work of the holy spirit that's almost indescribable indescribable in some ways how can you describe how the holy spirit worked in your life other than remembering how how did god first start working in your life do you remember the days when really god wasn't in any of your thoughts or if he was it was distant Maybe on a Sunday you got a little glimmer or you've got a little religious uh goosebump here or there over going to church, maybe to a Good Friday service or Christmas or Easter or something of that sort. But when the Holy Spirit is really operative in your life, you know that it's not of me, but it's of God. Romans 839, 8, 8.30 says, For whom he did predestinate, them he also called. So, People who have been predestined, which means it's already determined in advance that this individual or individuals will come to saving faith in Christ. That has been predetermined. And how is that actually put into action? By the calling of the gospel in such a way to the ears of the hearer that they say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Lord, I submit myself to you. I trust you. I obey you. I receive you. I cry unto you. The Bible says, No man can say that Jesus is the Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 2. No one can say that Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? You know, it's because you have a false profession of faith. You can't really say that Jesus is your Lord because you don't have the Holy Spirit. And that's what determines the classification of an individual of being or not being a child of God. Do I or do I not have the gift of the Holy Spirit which bears witness to me to before God and before man that I have been born again. I have received the gospel by faith and trusted Jesus as my Savior. And we'll talk more about evangelistic perspectives from a Calvinistic standpoint and how that can possibly be harmonized. And I can't wait to speak on that topic in a couple of weeks. Paul says to, I mean, the Lord says to Paul when he's about to leave Corinth. Paul had a hard time going into Corinth. He was there in fear and trembling. The great Apostle Paul, who was a chosen vessel, was uncomfortable being in Corinth. That was a vile city. That would be like us walking into the heart of a district in San Francisco and seeing all the smuck going on around us and feeling a great discomfortability. Well, the Corinthians were renowned for being a very perverted, sinful, sinful place. And yet the Lord sends them there. Paul's like, in his mind, I can't take it anymore. i got to get out of here. And the Lord said this to him. He says, don't be afraid. I am with you. And no one will set on you to hurt you. For I have yet much people in this city. Don't leave, Paul. I'm going to use you in the coming days for the conversion of more people. I have yet much people in this city. There's still more to come. Paul, I'm not finished with with your ministry, with your presentation of the gospel. More are going to be brought into the fold. I've got to call them. You know, after all, the evangelist is really God. For you and me to take credit for being the evangelist is a mistake. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And sometimes Paul just went into a district, he spread the word and left. But the word would not return void because if God has a purpose in the conversion of people's lives, it will be accomplished. It will succeed. God is not a failure. He's not a loser. He's a winner. If he chooses, it's going to come to pass. Jesus says in John 6, 37, another well-known and well-quoted verse. Unfortunately, only a part of it is, is quoted. The part that says, He that cometh to me, I will in no way cast out. John 6, 37. Missed the first part. All that the Father has given me shall come to me. And he that comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Who are the ones that are going to come? All that the Father has given me. Brothers and sisters, this is worshipful. This creates worship in us. Because we want to magnify the grace of God. We want to say, why me, Lord? I'm not any different and don't deserve anything other than what everybody else deserves. Why did you choose me? Why did you open my heart? I don't know. You don't know. You know better than your unsaved brother or sister who's not yet saved or a parent that's not saved. But God, in His wisdom and in His sovereignty, chose whosoever He will." In First Corinthians 4, 7, it says, what, have, what do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, why do you glory as if you had not received it? What is that that we received? We received the grace of God. By grace you are saved through faith that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works lest any man should boast. The reason why you're you and you got saved is because of the grace of God that opened your heart and your eyes. You weren't even seeking it. But God was drawing you and showed you that Christ died as a substitute for a sinner like you. Praise the Lord. In Acts chapter 15 at the Council of Jerusalem, there's great concern about the Gentiles coming into the family of God, into the spiritual uh, household of the redeemed. The Jews are up in arms about it. Some of them, they're barking at the fact that Gentiles are coming in. They're not being circumcised. They're not obeying the law of Moses, et cetera, etc. Et and James has to set the record straight. And Peter and Paul, and they all pipe up and say, the gospel saved them. They're free in Christ. And verse 14 says, God is calling out of the nations a people for his name. Don't frown on the Gentiles coming in among Jewish-believing Messianic Jews, if I can call them that. Because God has given them equal status. He has sanctified them with the Holy Spirit like He did with any Jewish believer as well. And therefore, they're not to be discarded or ranked as sort of second-class citizens. He is calling out of the nations. Among the nations, individuals are being called out from the nations, to be a people for his name. You've heard me give that illustration. Maybe some in this room haven't, and and forgive me if you've heard it several times, but I think it's one of the simplest and easiest illustrations that I think can be given. In the book of Romans 3, this is the King James Textus Receptus translation. It says, The gospel is unto all, but upon all them that believe. That's a good theological truth. The gospel goes out to everybody. We're not selective. I don't have the list of the Lamb's book of life. I don't know who's saved. I'm not going to give up on my children or my neighbor or anybody for that matter because I just don't have the insight to know that. And I'm glad I don't. God doesn't want me to know. But God does want me and you to spread the gospel no matter what. Arthur Pink says the gospel is not merely an invitation, but a declaration. We're declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth. He's over all. And to him, every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Getting back to what I was saying was, help me, are you listening? I'm losing my own track of, train of thought here Um, yeah the gospel is unto all that thank you but upon all them that believe I've told you the example about the dog whistle and I've been around with I've seen the whistler blow the dog whistle and I don't know what I hear nothing but the dog does if an ambulance went by here guess who would be squawking that little dog over there right am I right Suzanne that dog, we would not, maybe not even hear it if it was a half a mile away. But that dog's ear would. Why do you have ears that heard and someone else doesn't? I don't have an explanation for that. But I do praise God, like Jesus says, He that has an ear to hear, let him hear. Jesus, well, I should say Paul in Romans chapter 10 verse 14, says about the gospel... How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. How shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How are they going to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall he preach except he be sent? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How do you get faith? Faith is a gift. Rome, uh, Ephesians 2-8. By grace you are saved through faith that not of yourselves it is a gift. A gift of God. Even the faith that you have is not your own. It's been given to you. Again, it boils down to this. To God be the glory in our salvation. Hallelujah. What a savior that we have been the recipients of this grace, and for, will forever be able to say unto him who loved me and gave himself for me, to him be glory and honor and praise, and will look forever on the mocks of Calvary and, and marvel that God ordained that you and I would hear the gospel and that the resistance would be diminished in the desire to receive Christ. we don 't come into the kingdom kicking and screaming. I remember I was uh I brought uh, one of my older girlfriends this was my new one and I liked her more but I brought my old girlfriend <laughs> and I brought my new girlfriend with me I brought I brought them both cuz I wanted them both to hear the word and she was so gracious and and let her come into the same car with us but I wanted her to hear the gospel from someone who was more versed in the word than I was I was just a new believer and my heart went out to her and I was hopeful that the, that she could hear the gospel clearly and as, she, as as he's giving her the gospel, she's starting to cry. And her name was Karen. And He says, "Karen, I see you crying." He says, "Is it because you're afraid of what your boyfriend will think?" And she not. And that wasn't me, by the way. Uh, I already had one. I was satisfied. Um, <laughs> a better one. That's my humble opinion. But in a Christian, on top of that, that's what really made the difference. But, you know, he ended up talking her into going into a side room and praying with her and have her pray a sinner's prayer. And um, I just, even at that early stage, I just felt uncomfortable about it. Like, I didn't think she had been in a state of receptivity, that she was really ready. She was emotionally stirred up, obviously, by the way, he was talking, and he was very persuasive and convincing. And he wasn't manipulative. I don't want to go that far. He was an earnest evangelist, for sure. And God used him in many ways all around the country. Uh, Scotland, that's where he came from, and uh, is well known in the circles that he moved in around, around the world even. And uh, I was glad to have known him and been, a, been in his company and even traveled with him for uh, evangelistic crusades that he had been on back in the uh, mid-70s. But God persuades us. He's the one that convinces us because of the way in which he draws us to himself. So we want to take our hat off. We want to pay tribute to God and say salvation is truly of the Lord from first to last. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this irresistible grace that Lord, it pleased you to draw us to yourself and open our hearts and give us an understanding that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he died as our substitute upon the cross. Lord, we give you the glory and honor and thanks for your matchless grace in revealing yourself to us. And Lord, if there's someone here, we pray, O God, that the Holy Spirit would break down the barriers, that they would feel conviction by you, Holy Spirit, that they would submit themselves to the gospel, that they would truly reach out As your word says that you are not far from any one of us. And Lord, may they reach out. May they be drawn by you, Lord, and come to saving faith in yourself. Oh God, we give you glory, honor, and praise in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
1: Came from glory how we gave his life on Calvary to Oh, <laughs> Okay.
0: us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption amen the lord bless the day we'll have our congregational meeting in a few minutes brother pat and whatever we're just going to take a couple minute break and get get yourself a little snack i guess and then head back in here and we'll start up in 10 or 15 minutes or so for our congregational meeting all are
1: welcome to stay Ooh,